0: The Gold Standard of Paranormal Radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: So a little bit later, we'll be hearing from Jacques Vallée. And obviously, there's going to be one or more questions of him, of that book he did with Paula Harris called Trinity. And it's one of those things where you say, what? Because Paula Harris is not, shall we say, the most... I don't know how we'd put it, objective writer. She tends to accept things as the real deal that are a little questionable. And, of course, one example of that is the Billy Meyer case. And by the way, if you folks want to hear what Billy Meyer really sounds like, our staff announcer and sometime guest co-host Bob Zanotti actually did an interview with Billy Meyer speaking English like 10, 15 years ago that Zanotti has on his site. And you have to think here, he literally, literally had to coach Meyer on his English because it's not really good. So we'll look forward to that. Maybe we'll ask him to present that for Paracast Plus listeners. Kurt Collins is our guest co-host this week. Kurt, do you ever care or look at the reviews we get from iTunes?
2: Uh, no, i not, not, not followed those. I wonder if that's any more reliable than Yelp or anything else when people give reviews. Do you, do you think it's a, a fair sampling?
1: The problem with that is that people have an axe to grind review. People who have no axe to grind or just listen every week, don't bother. But the reviews are kind of wacky. Like The ones we've gotten over the years are those about the number of commercials we run, because this is a commercial radio show on a real radio network. Let me say that again, a real radio network, GCN, which means probably 25% of the content is commercials. And if you want to add that number, if you're looking at that, take a look, for example, at a one hour TV show on a major TV station, broadcast television or commercial cable it's roughly 43 to 44 minutes out of an hour. So it's more than 25% commercials. So that's the normal number. But what we do is offer the Paracast Plus. If you don't want to hear the ads and you want to pay a few bucks a month, you get the Paracast Plus. We also offer the After the Paracast podcast with extra stuff. Like Kurt will be joining us after our interview with Jacques Vallée on After the Paracast to talk things over. And we do mention the PowerCast Plus on the show, so people complaining about the number of commercials, maybe they're not listening. And they always say it's 50% commercial at 25%, okay? Let's just get that straight. Anyway, the other thing they review us on is they feel that we are pushing liberal politics. Now, Kurt, you're a gentleman who lives in the Deep South, in a red state. Do you... Think that the Paracast has too much political content?
2: No, I don't think so. It, uh, you touch on issues from time to time. That's not why I tune in. I'm not really interested in, in hearing that so much in a paranormal show. But you know, there are a lot of things like, especially the UFO topic does rely on politics i mean there's been a lot of that lately with the the congressmen investigating and and there's even the suggestion that they're maybe using the topic to get their names in the news and be more recognizable for reelection and that sort of thing so it comes into play and i think where there's an overlap it, it's worth discussing but uh, i think a lot of people listen to uh, the podcast for uh, an escape of the ugly daily news
1: oh yes it is ugly I mean, politics can really be raunchy. And I understand why some people don't really want to hear politics. But we try to focus on where it intersects and interacts with UFOs. As you say, some members of Congress are part of the UFO coalition. And you think here, are they really scrounging for votes? Is there a UFO constituency that, say, uh, Marco Rubio, Republican senator from Florida, has to cater to.
2: I'm not aware of that, are you? Oh, boy. Now, this this gets into just the sort of thing I was trying to avoid, but there are those that believe that QAnon, which I'm sure everybody knows is a right-wing conspiracy theory, well, a set of conspiracy theories, is exploiting the UFO topic and that they find people interested in the topic bait for members because they already accept some extreme things and it's not... Too much of a of a leap, and if you want to examine that, I mean that does have origins. I mean, you remember um, Bill Cooper? He became very right wing and had all these conspiracy theories about the um, the government being involved in deception and and, and lying and hoaxing and UFO sightings and 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 virtually everyone that he had met on the lecture circuit of UFOs, he accused them of being a CIA operative. Uh, and I see a lot of that. In this, And, you know, some of his followers wound up, well, Timothy McVeigh was one of his followers, the, the Oklahoma City bomber. So there is the potential to exploit somebody and twist it for some devious ends. But let's hope that most people have a much more level head and are, are not going to be swayed in a path like that.
1: I think the long and short of it is that regardless of what your political viewpoints are, UFOs exist. There's a phenomenon. We'd sure like to find out what's going on. And it should not matter whom you voted for, what particular theories you subscribe to. Like, of course, there have been efforts, for example, to tie us in with the anti-vaccination movement, anti-mandates for masks and such. Those are public health issues. They're not part Of a paranormal radio show, UFOs may exist or not, it doesn't depend on the pandemic. And the pandemic is not part of the show, and it will not be part of the show because it's not relevant. We're not doing a political show, except insofar as we get involved. I mean, when the government is investigating UFOs and politicians are speaking up, well, we have to talk about it because of those implications. But when they say this is a liberal talk show, I'm sorry.
2: Well, the, you know, the one bright thing about the, the UFO topic recently is that it has been a, one of the few bipartisan issues. So, you know, that's, you know, like you said, you know, it's dealing with a matter of military sightings and the fact that there's something, whatever it is, that uh, that's being reported and discussed and taken seriously by the military. And our public officials are at least united and trying to investigate and make some sense out of it at least whether or not they want to educate the public in the topic of of, of what it's about it's a matter of uh, military and, and public safety so on that basis they're, they're looking into it
1: and to show you where it's going two of the former CIA directors Grennan and I forget the other person's name Woolsey R. James Woolsey former CIA director OK, and of course, there's John Brennan. Now, basically, regardless of which president originally appointed them, these people are not necessarily political animals. OK, the difference would be someone like a representative John Radcliffe, who was a former director of national intelligence, who has spoken positively on UFOs. He is a conservative Republican. And when it comes to UFOs, so what? We're going to deal with the issue as it presents itself with a political figure. We're not going to deal with the issue to push a political philosophy. The philosophy of the Powercast is facts. Wherever they come from, we'll talk about the facts insofar as the paranormal is concerned. I just hope the people who review us on iTunes would actually listen to the show first before they make comments. It would help a lot. Now, I should point out, it's quite possible some people who listen to the show hear a couple of random comments. And they assume, based on the random comments, that this is the philosophy of the Paracast or its guests. And with over 800 episodes, of course, that's perfect nonsense. Okay, Kurt Collins will have some further comments to make about things he's posted on his blog in just a moment. A little bit later, Jacques Follet joins us. You're in
2: the Paracast.
1: Once again, the Paracast.plus. Prices are just dollar50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out the Paracast.plus to learn more about Paracast+. Plus.
3: Yes, the pandemic is coming to an end. Restrictions are coming to an end, but body aches and pains never seem to end. That's why you need to click sunny-bay.com for the best sleep you can get. Sunny Bay's legendary products can help, like our lavender stress-reducing products, locally sourced and handmade in the USA, or try Sunny Bay's award-winning pillows for traveling or extra neck support while sleeping. No need for pills or expensive chiropractic visits. Our neck support pillows are that good. Sunny Bay is a homegrown small business, but our products are designed and rigorously tested based on your demand and feedback. And they make great gifts for mom, dad, or anyone. Find Sunny Bay products on Amazon, Walmart, Etsy, or at sunny-bay.com. And right now, get free heat patches and a belt with any purchase. So remember, Sunny Bay heating pads, neck pillows, and stress-relieving hot or cold wraps as restrictions come to an end and you get back to work. Do it the healthy way with Sunny Bay.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: Now, before we go away completely from anything political, you were going to mention something, Kurt Collins.
2: Well, you were talking about reviews and, uh, you know, on on my blog, uh, Blue Lines and on Saucers at Time Forgot, we occasionally get comments. Sometimes, you know, it's uh, it's information about an article. You know, some people are just saying, you know, great job or whatever. But, you know, it's, it's great to have that feedback. And, and you, you said in the reviews, so I hope some of your listeners who have been quiet and enjoyed the show will say something, you know, at least to kind of balance things out. It's nice to know that someone's listening, you know, and, and, you know, if they have a positive suggestion, they should share that, too.
1: Now, as our listeners know, in addition to running the sausage of Time for God and Blue Blurry Lines, Kurt is the webmaster of a site we set up when Jim Mosley died. And I was thinking of that because on last week's episode, we featured Bob Zanotti as guest co-host. And Bob and I had done an episode called Voices of the Past, and Jim Mosley had participated in some of that discussion, where we talk about the people in the UFO field from New York who were prominent back in the 60s. And I know you, Kurt Collins, have covered UFO history, especially in terms of pop culture. So when I mention these names, do any ring a bell to you and feel
2: free to say no. John J. Robinson... Yes. What do you know about him? He was, um, from what I understand, he was interested in the occult, and I believe he reported uh, being harassed by the men in black. And I think he was also the victim of a prank by uh, Jim Mosley and and maybe another person where, you know, it was an alleged doppelganger of Jim that was hanging around his house. And he claimed to be somewhere else during that time, time. So it was it was a men in black related harassment. Do I have the right fella?
1: You do indeed. He had an apartment in Jersey City, New Jersey, an old fashioned apartment house. And he and his wife, Mary, were just really, really knowledgeable individuals, really nice. And I was just really happy to have known Jack. Jack, of course, died, I think of lung cancer, which was rather unfortunate. He was really a a great gentleman. And one of the cases he investigated was the Steve Brody case, where he knew this young artist between marriages. He was living at a rooming house. And if you weren't around in the 1930s, you have no idea what I'm talking about there. But this guy claimed to have been captive of the Deros. Pretty interesting. That was John J. Robinson. Also, Dominic Lucchesi. Does that name ring a bell Kurt?
2: Yes, I'm not as familiar with him, but I, I, I do know he was involved with Al Bender's uh, International Flying Saucer Bureau. But I know very little about, about his work.
1: Now, of course, it was August C. Roberts, a photographer who studied UFOs. And unfortunately, he created fake photos from time to time.
2: I wondered about that. Now, I've seen one of the things I found the most interesting about him is, um, I, I've met a, another researcher, Lewis Taylor, and he's, he scours eBay auctions for all sorts of odd UFO things. And he's turned up a few things, including some pictures of a few folks from the early UFO scene that, you know, rare photos that, that August Roberts took. So, you know, he was, he was also covering conferences and you know, lectures and things like that. So, so I'm hoping to, to collect some of those pictures when I have enough to write an article about.
1: We'd like to definitely know about that. What about
2: Yonah Fortner? Yes, uh, now I see all these names at least ring a bell because I saw them in uh, Saucer News. I've read. I have a small collection of the original issues of Jim Mosley's magazine, which which later Gray Barker took over for just a few issues. And uh, so Yona, I understand he was uh, he was an early proponent of, of something like the ancient astronaut theory. His
1: series was Extraterrestrialism as an historical doctrine. And he used his Hebrew name, Y.N. Ibn Aharon, and he suggested that Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, was Mm E.T. Now, what's interesting about this is, and this is the problem that we always had with Yonah, is that he took advantage of the fact that he was fluent in a number of languages, and he could say something. And he say, this is Aramaic, Okay. You know, it might as well be gibberish to me because I have no idea. And he basically provide references that may or may not have existed.
2: <laughs> oh, well, he's not the only one in the field who have done that, but I guess it was more credible with his language uh, expertise.
1: Yes, because, again, he was in a position where there was no possible way anyone but a linguist could understand what he was saying and whether it was real or not. And he was a brilliant man. He really was. And I really liked him. He was fun to listen to. He could be very funny. But he could also be bombastic and he could pull stunts. One time he was on a radio show. This was after Long John Nebel left W.O.R. Radio. And he was replaced by the Amazing Randy for several seasons. So Fortner is on the show, and he is saying over and over again something that in Spanish would be interpreted as a four-letter word. (laughs) And Jim was there, and Jim is trying to hide behind the microphone while this is going on. And this is live broadcast radio, okay? This is 1960s radio, live. There was no second chance there. It wasn't even on a seven-second delay. Usually the people who call in when they take phone calls from the audience, they would go on a seven-second delay. But the actual show would be live, and is doing this, and Jim knows what he's doing, but he can't say
2: Jim, he spoke spoke some Spanish and spent a lot of time in uh, South America. I don't know if he was really fluent in it, but I bet he knew
8: knew every curse word.
1: Well, that's interesting that you mention it, because in that particular situation there, Jim lived for times in Peru where he did, quote unquote, grave robbing for fun and profit, where he do archaeological digs. He'd recover various artifacts. He would sell them. And the problem, of course, is normally when you do this, you have to go to the government of the country in which you're doing the exploration to get permission. These are national treasures. He did not have that permission. And one day he had to flee the country because they would have caught him. And he did not want to end up in a South American prison.
2: I think I've, I've got... At least a good portion of that story at the Jim Mosley site. I think I called that. Uh, it was. It has mask in the title. I've forgotten it now. But it, the the problem was one of the things he got out of the country was this golden mask, and it wound up in a, a full color uh, photograph in a Life magazine article, and that just. That caused too much heat and a lot of questions being asked on an international level. And I think that might have when it all came tumbling down.
1: Yes, Jim Mosley was one of a kind. We have more to come with Kurt Collins as our guest co-host. A little bit later, Jacques Vallée joins us. You're
2: in the Paracast.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
6: In the last 12 months, the Federal Reserve has added over $4 trillion to their balance sheet. It's led to an explosion in financial assets. Stocks, bonds, commodities, cryptocurrencies, housing prices have all exploded higher. But the Federal Reserve can't keep this going forever. This is unsustainable. It's why you need Advantage Gold. We teach people how to own physical gold and silver the right way. Call 800-900-8000. We don't pay celebrities millions of dollars. We pass that value on to you. It's why we're number one. Call 800-900-8000 now, speak with one of our experts, and learn how. We'll send you a free gold kit and a copy of my national best-selling book, The Great Devaluation. Call 800-900-8000. That's 800-900-8000. Get the best information, the best process, the best service, the best value. Call 800-900-8000 now.
7: USA Radio News
10: with Tim Berg. It's Labor Day weekend and the nation is struggling with four times as many COVID-19 cases as this time a year ago. 62% 62% of the population has received at least one dose of a vaccine, but with the rapidly spreading Delta variant, hospitalizations are twice as high as they were last Labor Day. Since Hurricane Ida knocked out power to about a million customers in Louisiana, several officials have proposed putting power lines underground. Rod West is a president of Energy Utility Operations Group. He explains why he doesn't think that plan makes sense on the Gulf Coast.
11: It is, for the for the large part, a a cost prohibitive proposition. And what you trade in terms of the frequency of outages, and yes, there is a benefit to the frequency of outages, you wind up losing in terms of duration and disruption.
10: USA Radio News. Two-time U.S. Open champion Naomi Osaka announced following her loss at the U.S. Open on Friday that she plans to take a break from the sport. The 23-year-old defending champion of the Open disclosed earlier this year after she pulled out of the French Open that she's battling depression. A boxing legend is getting back in the ring.
12: Former undisputed heavyweight champion Evander Holyfield at 58 years old has agreed to fight for the first time in a decade. Holyfield agreeing Friday to take on former UFC star Vitor Belfort next Saturday. This will be Holyfield's 57th career fight. He's stepping in for another boxing legend, Oscar De La Hoya, who had to back out after getting COVID. Holyfield's return running into a snag, though. The De La Hoya-Belfort fight was set for LA, but the California State Athletic Commission won't sanction the Holyfield fight. ESPN reporting Holyfield-Belfort will take place in Hollywood, Florida. From the USA Radio News Florida Bureau, I'm Mike Fortier.
10: Find us online at usaradio.com. You're listening to USA Radio News.
11: We are GCN, the Genesis Communications Network. We've got listeners, lots of them. Around the world, around the clock, our listeners do what listeners do. They listen. And you know what listeners got? needs needs for your products your services and money to buy those needs with our network of over 1000 radio stations streaming on the web and our satellite transmissions we're reaching our listeners with quality conservative programming but there's something our listeners don't have your offer to meet their needs any business needs buyers but if our listeners don't hear your message they're still going to buy what they need just not from your business So let's fix this. Tell us about your business. Then let our super creative department go to work to craft just the right message for our GCN listeners. Get started today with GCN, the Genesis Communications Network. Just shoot us an email. Advertise at GCNlive.com.
0: This is Micah Hanks of the Grayling Report, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: And we're kind of doing our own rendition of voices in the past here about our experiences in the field over the years. Because Kurt Collins at Blue Blurry Lines and the Saucers at Time Forgot and the Jim Mosley Memorial site has looked at the past and seen how the things they did may or may not have contributed to the field. And it's kind of unfortunate that some of the things these people have done has gotten lost in the sands of time. I'll give you one example that you know about is Jim Mosley in Saucer News ran a special Adamski or Georgia Adamski expose issue back in, what, 1957? And you have links to it, I believe. But he put together a number of writers, and they ripped the George Adamski claims to shreds. But because Jim tended to be a court jester and he'd play hoaxes, we forget the good things he did like that,
2: Kurt, right? Well, that's true. Uh, There was a lot of uh, investigation over the years. he He was curious about the reality of the topic. Now, he was also... He also had a magazine to run in space to fill, and he was friends with Gray Barker. And there wasn't always really good news, so sometimes they would uh, create controversies, and at least on a, two or three occasions, some hoaxes to to make things exciting. And uh, to to some people, that destroys all the, the credibility of the other work. And you know, I, but I think if you if you look at things in context. You can easily sort out about what's what's genuine and what's not. Jim investigated a number of cases that um like one was that the it was written up as the right field story, and then Gray Barker ghost wrote that as a book based on jim's notes, but the uh, the core of the story is great, yeah, I mean Jim was really doing some detective work and and locating the anonymous witness that had uh, who claimed to have that there were saucer parts. Our a recovered saucer in right field because there had been all of these these there's always been legends about recovered saucers and this one seemed to have a time and place and a, and a person and ultimately there you know he found the the the, the people that the, the lady that was involved that that had created the story two of her mil, i think were supervisors and in the, in the i think she was the secretary and the uh the Air Force officers that worked with her. And while it was disappointing, you still have to put in that work to track down a story. And, you know, sometimes you can learn more by investigating hoaxes. You know, very few UFO cases have concrete answers. So, at least when the hoaxes cross the path of officials, you can get you know crack the door and learn a little bit about what's going on what they might know and what they actually consider a possibility because there have been a lot of people in the air Force that are what they seemed just willing to believe as is, is any typical saucer fan but but yeah Jim did a lot of lot of work a lot of credible work over the years and and in later years he put that aside and and made an effort to document what he had done and, you know, share the work, make it available and and openly discuss the things that he had done. So, you know, I I think there's a lot to be learned by uh, studying his work and, you know, and that of Gray Barker as well.
1: Gray Barker was an interesting character too, because remember, he first came to fame over a best-selling book called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. With a heavy focus on the case of Albert K. Bender. So we could say more or less that Gray Barker
2: was the inventor of the Men in Black. That's true. And, you know, I guess when you say a UFO book now, people don't don't think much about it because there are so many. But at this time, this was 1956, there were only a handful or so of books. And this was... Uh, published by a, a respectable publisher and and, and was a, a good seller I, it reached a lot of people it was pretty influential i, I think it has the unin, i don't know if it was in, unintended or not but that one of the consequences of the book is i really think it ramped up the paranoia in the ufo field you know that somebody is out to get you the men in black or the government and yeah i think that's always been part of of I think that was kind of baked into ufology that you're supposed to distrust at least the government, you know, from from the days of Donald Kehoe. And only, you know, just a few years later, Gray Barker's book, you know, just really amplified that. And, And that's still going strong today.
1: And the interesting thing about this is later on, The Men in Black became a graphic comic book. The graphic comic book was sold to Hollywood. So the Men in Black movies were based on the graphic comic book, which in turn was influenced by Legends of the Men in Black, featured by Gray Barker and later by John Keel. But Gray, of uh, course, uh, never
2: got credit for it. uh, John Keel, I think he he really took over that franchise. And the Men in Black in the the comics and in the movies were uh, J and K for John Keel. That's right
1: like i said even keel didn't find himself enriched by that he wasn't doing terrifically financially i think the most money he made was from the movie the mothman prophecies
2: that was an interesting movie but it was uh i don't know how would you how would you describe it i think i i I think even keel said it captured the flavor but i mean it's got bits and pieces and it's all mixed up and I think that John Keel himself was basically split into two characters: one, the, the reclusive ufologist, and one, the, the lead character played by who was that? Was that Richard Gere?
1: Richard Gere. Imagine John Keel being played more or less by Richard Gere.
2: <laughs> had a had a lot of mood mood to it, and certainly, of course, the the, the Mothman book was was not really. It's not exactly a UFO book, but I guess the and the movie itself was more of a I don't know, forty a nightmare, maybe.
1: The book barely broke even. The box office was fifty five million. The movie cost probably about thirty million to make, and the way it works in Hollywood, a movie has to gross twice the production cost to begin to break even. So this movie didn't kind of do it, but it had a pretty interesting group of characters. Richard Gere plays John Klein. Laura Linney was in it. Deborah Messing. Remember Deborah Messing? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And also Will Patton. So those were the stars. And it's one of those movies that even if you knew the case, The Mothman, you'd be confused by it.
2: Yeah, I think it was so, you know they had the the, the romantic storyline, the loss of the wife, and things like that. And but you know, it's I guess it's a good paranormal movie, and it's got a lot of mood. I, and I, it was uh, came out during the times that the, the broadcast of the X Files, and I think it had a similar flavor to it and mood and spirit. So you know, I think I enjoyed watching it, but you know, I had to forget the any. So called facts that it was based on uh, and, the, and the story. So that happens to a lot of movies, though. I mean, they play very loosely with the source material.
1: Of course, the biggest example that you and I have talked about is Flying Saucers from Outer Space by Major Donald Kehoe. Hollywood bought that movie and keogh mentions it in the subsequent book. Oh, they're going to come out with something. I think he naively believed or pretended to believe it would be a documentary. And no, it ended up being the influence to the film Earth versus the Flying Saucers. And I wondered, why would Hollywood buy Kehoe's book to make that movie? And maybe it was the rights to use the name Flying Saucers.
2: It couldn't have been that. There must there must have been some angle to it. I think it. I know at least at one point there was. It would enhance the status of a property if it was based on a book, or at least you could say it was based on a book. So maybe maybe that was it, or I, I, I don't know. But there was there were there was some commercial reason for sure.
1: We have Kurt Collins as our guest co-host, Jacques Fillet coming up with Jean and Kurt. You're in the Paracast. use the coupon code
8: Tehibo Tea Club's original Pure Pau Diarco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus doesn't grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti inflammation, and antiparasite properties. To order, please visit shopsupertea.com. That's shop, S-H-O-P, super, S-U-P-E-R, T-T-E-A, dot com. So the complete website is shopsupertea.com. Or call us at 818-984-6100, Monday through Saturday, 9 to 5, California time. That's shopsupertea.com at 818-984-6100.
6: Call Advantage Gold at 800-900-8000. Call
14: 800-900-8000. Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of AD After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal
1: radio. Yes, there has to be a reason, but I think Major Kehoe never lived it down. But the point of it is that, and I've written science fiction with my son, and we had an agent who was licensed with the Writers Guild. And if we had sold it to Hollywood, the key here is that in most cases, the authors of a book have no say whatever in how the finished product turns out. Unless you gain a producer's spot. Like there was a TV show called Bosch, based on an L.A. detective. And the show's executive producing team includes Michael Connolly, who is the guy who wrote the novels, Bosch. And because of that, he had a high level of influence on the shape of the show. But if Hollywood just buys something, they'll do things with it that the original author would never dream of or
2: want. You know, here's here's my pitch for a, for a, a Flying Saucer movie. Go ahead. The 1977 Fate Convention in Chicago. Did you happen to attend that?
1: No, no, not at all. The last convention I attended was 1975 in Fort Smith, Arkansas, of which I can tell you stories. But go ahead.
2: Well, this one was notable because it had, you know, of course, this is 30 years into things, they had and it was sponsored by fate magazine so they had uh, curtis fuller they had they and and ray palmer he'd been out of the magazine for ages but they brought him back because of his significance in, in starting things and so he spoke there and jacques valet and i mean it was a who's who i mean uh, uh, dr Heinrich spoke now that i've said it's a who's who i've gone blank on the other names but to, so so everyone had a, had a major lecture they had panels and everything they were uh you know exhibits and films shown. So, so my my uh, I, I would set the movie during that with all the interaction between these these pivotal figures, and then of course you would have great flashbacks of things. You know, it's like whether it actually happened. Here's how you know it, it was presented, and so this was you know you could cover just a, a lot of cases. You know, all the the important ones, and then what was being discussed at the day. Would, which would be, you know, when Betty Hill was there, of course, uh, the Pascagoula case was still fresh and 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 being discussed. So it would be a rich, you know, maybe a miniseries would even be a better format. I mean, it would be a great way to tell the first thirty years of UFO history and and mix in the the characters and personalities.
1: Maybe we should go to Bryce Sable or to James Fox, and
2: sure, pitch I it think to some them. of their. Uh, some of their um, their colleagues, you uh, know, of course, they had worked with uh, Stan Friedman. I'm sure uh, he was there, and now uh, you know and some of the other other people. Um, so around '77, that was when Doctor uh, Doctor Heineck was getting CUFOS started. Well, I'm not sure exact. Well, I guess it had already been running for a couple of years then, but th- there was a, a younger generation that were coming up. So that you would see the the beginnings of a few careers there, too.
1: Yes, too bad. I had moved back to New York before then, and I hadn't been traveling to UFO conventions all that much. The one in 1975 was really nice, too, because there we had Dr. Hynek, of course. Jim Mosley was there, all my old friends, Alan Greenfield, Kurt Sutherly. Kurt, by the way, was on the Paracast once or twice, he did research into the Kenneth Arnold sighting and to Maury Island. And so he, he was there with me and I interviewed Dr. Hynek. I interviewed Major Kehoe. I had a dust up with the late Coral Lorenzen <laughs> and APRO. I've told about that. Where 10 years earlier I put out a small UFO magazine and we ran a clip from Fate Magazine and we summarized it. And I think we included a picture with it, with a credit. And she wrote back and said, okay, you owe me $100. Fate magazine didn't care. I asked them later on. Fate magazine did not care that I summarized the article and ran this reference. They didn't care. Carl Lorenzen, 1965, writes me, send me $100. And I said, no, it's fair use. I summarized it. I never heard from her again. 1975, I meet her for the first time. This was before just regular mail. I meet her for the first time. Hi, I'm Gene Steinberg. Oh, I remember you.
2: So, the organization so she that- kept
1: this grudge against me mm-hmm. for 10 years. Now, her husband, Jim Lorenzen, was a really pleasant guy. Wasn't quite as ornery as his wife. And he just
2: listened. I think he was
1: embarrassed.
2: Hmm. The um, you were you were in this the stew of all the when there were several active organizations. And, and you know, I get the impression from reading the old correspondence and articles that there were some feuds going on. And there was quite a bit of, of uh, uh, I don't know, scrap over territory in cases. Uh, and I think that had to hamper. You know, uh, there wasn't a. Doesn't look like there was much sharing of resource, research and resources. So, do you? What's your impression of the apparent tangle back then?
1: Well, there are several different levels, but let's go back. In 1969, a group of APRO members created a splinter group called Midwest UFO Network, and later changed it to Mutual UFO Network. So MUFON started out as a splinter group of people from APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, Coral Lorenzen's group. Now, I'm not going to get into that because it's not important. And I think as much as they've tried, MUFON hasn't made a huge dent in anything. So let's go with there. All right. Major Kehoe and Jim Mosley didn't like each other. And I'll tell you why. Back in the early 50s, Jim had teamed up with a writer. I think his name was Ken Crepin, as I recall. I might be pronouncing that wrong. And Ken was writing a flying saucer book, and he recruited Jim to be a co-author and researcher. Jim, being independently wealthy, traveled around the country and interviewed people. He went to Project Blue Book, and they said, sure, come in. We'll show you the cases, and you could use one of our office typewriters to write down the cases, which he did. Some of the stuff that he put together was later used in the book Shockingly Close to the Truth that Jim wrote with Carl Flock. Mm -hmm. And I remember that book distinctly because my name is mentioned half a dozen times. So there we go with the ego. Anyway, so Jim told me the story later. He wrote them down. And then later, Major Kehoe learned that Jim was given this access. Now, Major Kehoe, and he basically says so in his books, a lot of the cases he covered were given to him verbally by various spokespeople like Al Chop. And he learns that Jim got in there. Now, I don't know whether Jim had the right smile or what, or the fact that his father was once a high muckety-muck in the U.S. Army. Whatever it is, he had some political affiliations. Jim got this direct access. Major Keo's talking on the phone. He complains to his Air Force Project Blue Book contacts. And guess what? They stopped doing that.
2: Uh, I, see what, yeah, I know this story. I know it's coming.
1: Okay, now item number two. Jim Mosley, back in the 60s, he phones up NICAP to ask about a case or something. And he gets Richard Hall. Richard Hall was basically the office manager for NICAP. Major Kia was director, but he never did anything. Or if he did anything, it was every few days he'd come into the office to check things. And... If you you know this, Major Kehoe was a lousy manager. Literally speaking, he'd left envelopes with money on his couch. This is the <laughs> story about Major Kehoe. Okay, so I guess that Richard Hall didn't like Jim because Jim was known to have the fake feud with Gray Barker to play a few hoaxes. So... We're having this conversation, Jim and Richard Hall. So Richard Hall says to Jim, are you taping this out of the blue? Now, one thing we have to say about Jim Mosley, and we'll continue in the next segment, Jim Mosley was the ultimate Luddite. He didn't have a tape recorder. He didn't have a telephone answering machine. He never bought a mobile phone, never bought a PC or a Mac or anything like that. Jim didn't have all that extra gear. We have more to come. With Gene and Kurt Shock coming up soon, you're in the Paracast.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit gcnlive.com today.
1: Hey listeners. the Paracas.plus to learn more about Paracas Plus.
15: Oh, whale!
6: Guys, whale! Wow,
15: whale. Oh, that's a big whale. Um, okay. Whale, whale, whale. Oh, no, whale!
7: Tides can turn quick on the water. Progressive's Boat Insurance has you covered. Get a quote today in as little as three minutes at Progressive.com. At least it wasn't a shark, am I right? (laughs) Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: So, Jim says, no, I don't have a tape recorder. I don't even, wouldn't even know how to use one. He didn't have stuff like that. He didn't have an answering machine. And finally, they hung up on each other. Now... Let me go to step two of this story. Not long thereafter, Alan Greenfield, myself, Rick Hilberg, and an old friend of mine from Brooklyn, New York, name of Marty Salkind, we went to Washington, D.C. We then took a brief excursion to Luray, Virginia, to spend a few hours with Major Kehoe at a local diner. Now, I used to joke later that we met Kehoe at the Luray Caverns, but I guess nobody took the hint. Anyway, Kehoe was a pleasant guy. I met him a few times after that. Very nice. Very nice. I didn't see a nasty bone in his body. My encounters with him were very pleasant. We go to NICAP's headquarters, and I had been there before on a previous trip. Went to NICAP's headquarters. The doors opened, and I'll tell you where NICAP's headquarters were located in a moment. The door is open, Hall looks at us, and he's like mid to late 20s and I'm what 18, 19 years old, something like that or 20 years old. All of us were around the same age. And Hall looks at me, shakes his finger and says, "You're not welcome here." And we left. Now, why? I don't know. Except that he knew that I was working as a part-time job at Saucer News in New York. Okay? Maybe that's the reason, because he hated Jim Mosley. And then, of course, Jim would go around saying, Hall must fall. Want to start a movement to get rid of Richard Hall from NICAP. He did leave NICAP eventually. I don't think it was because of that, although Jim did take the credit for it. Now, to show you the differences in people, this is 1965. And remember what happened with Cora Lorenzen the encounter in 65 by mail, the physical meeting in 1975. At that very same convention, there's Richard Hall. And I walk up to him slowly and say, Hi, I am. He says, Hi hi there. How are you? We shook hands. We were totally okay with what happened in the past. That was gone. We could be friends. My only regret is that when we started the Paracast, I didn't contact
2: Richard Hall in time. To get him on the show,
16: yeah,
2: he must have had a lot of stories to tell. And I don't know about his field experience, but you know, producing the uh, the uh, the UFO evidence books, you know, just and and the NICAP files, having all the access to that, you know, I I am fully under the impression he held that organization together. You know, uh, Major Kehoe had. You know, his experience and his talent as a writer and investigation, that doesn't translate all that well to running an organization. I just don't think that, you know, it's it's a shame that they couldn't have utilized his talent. And, you know, it's just a shame that the organization was so plagued with with problems. And, of course, finances are always part of any UFO organization's worries.
1: Unfortunate because... I think if Kehoe brought in people who were really, really good at money, the organization would have done better and may have withstood the Condon report, which pretty much killed the organization. The other thing that Kehoe did, which was unfortunate, but at the time he probably did innocently, but you can see the reaction. His friends were military. Okay, he was a military person, a Marine, a retired Marine. His best friend, one of his best friends, was Admiral Hillencotter, the first head of the CIA. He puts these people on the board of NICAP. Look how important we are. We have these esteemed military figures. But people didn't react that way. It was, oh, maybe NICAP is a military cover-up
2: infiltration there but uh, there's uh, there's still examinations and accusations of that whereas I think if you really look at the organization he was basically padding the board of directors with important people so you know I'm not sure where the truth lies but that's that's my impression of it uh, I know uh, a uh, an early UFO witness uh, let's see what was his name commander Robert uh, McLaughlin. I don't think he had any input in the organization, but he was listed as as a board member. And I think that was just to pad the pad the roster.
1: Yeah, as I said, Keogh did this because he wanted people to take his organization seriously. Look, we have these esteemed military figures and scientists. They believe that UFOs are real. This is important. He didn't see the consequences
2: yeah it's there's so there's so many uh, organizations that have that have done great things for a while and then collapsed under their own weight or a problem with succession planning so you know you were talking about coral and, and Jim Lorenzen so the org- organization died with them the uh, the publications you know stopped the, the files went into a black hole somewhere. and uh, But, you know, they had built so much over the years. They had a network of, of qual- you know, and they sought out qualified uh, professionals as advisors and consultants. They had, a, they had a great network, you know, and, of course, MUFON bled some of that off and tried, tried to copy it. But, you know, it's just, had it not been... And you know, I have to wonder in that case you know, was it ego? Were they so um, hands-on and wanting to control things that they didn't train, you know, the next generation to come along? You know, what I mean? there was no there was no estate planning. So yeah, you know, it was, it's a shame. I, I it would be interesting to see if it could be revived. But I guess it's just way too long now. There's only a few people that are still active that were part of it.
1: The other thing here is I understand that their files were placed in file That's because we're talking about standard analog content here on printed paper and such, but no one has been able to get access to those files.
2: You know, I'm, I happen to know just from seeing parts of correspondence in in a uh, investigator's work and that there were files that went to APRO that they had information on that they didn't publish in the bulletin. And even if they did, it, you know, they only had so much space per issue and they were usually behind. So it was a summary. So, you know, you know, there, there were entire case histories and that, and we've only seen a small section of, of the material, you know, and, and the investigators love the case data and there's so much more. And, and, and of course also there's, there's bound to be photographs in there that were only printed in this, you know, well, one step up from a mimeo back in the, you know, fifties and, and up to, up to the eighties. So, you know, when you it, mentioned
1: something, you just very briefly mimeograph. This was a common device used to print a small newsletter and you type on a stencil and the stencil would be wrapped around the drum of the printer. you do one page at a time. It's not like you know duplexing that you can do on printers now. One page at a time, and typing on a stencil was the biggest royal pain in the universe.
2: <laughs> I don't know if you've ever done it. No, it was uh, in my early school days. They were still using Mimeo, and I, I would see a teacher type in on, on one of the forms, but I never saw the, the process. I've seen seen film of it. So, so w- was your issues uh, originally uh, presented that way?
1: Until I could afford to photo offset printing. Wow. Because mimeograph was just impossible. If you made a mistake, because I was a fast typist, but I'd make mistakes. You had to use this liquid that had a very strange odor to cover it over, to paper it over and type again. we got more to come. Jacques coming up soon with Gene and Kurt. in the Paracast. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about after the Paracast.
6: Eric-ass plus. In the last 12 months, the Federal Reserve has added over $4 trillion to their balance sheet. It's led to an explosion in financial assets. Stocks, bonds, commodities, cryptocurrencies, housing prices have all exploded higher. But the Federal Reserve can't keep this going forever. This is unsustainable. It's why you need Advantage Gold. We teach people how to own physical gold and silver the right way. Call 800-900-8000. We don't pay celebrities millions of dollars. We pass that value on to you. It's why we're number one. Call 800-900-8000 now, speak with one of our experts, and learn how. We'll send you a free gold kit and a copy of my national best-selling book, The Great Devaluation. Call 800-900-8000. That's 800-900-8000. Get the best information, the best process, the best service, the best value. Call 800-900-8000 now.
4: Are you curious about what might be missing from your diet and supplement choices? Take a free health assessment to identify your possible nutrient deficiencies. As a certified holistic health coach, I will help you assess and prioritize a supplement program based on Dr. Wallach's recommendations. Call Linda at 833-VITAL-90. That number to call is 833-848-2590. That's 833-VITAL-90.
12: The reviews for Extendivite are amazing. Amazon customer it's amazing I just ordered my second bottle in one month my blood pressure dropped significantly I no longer get chest pain after I exercise the reviews are spot on my target is to get off of BP meds and if it keeps going like this I see a light at the end of the tunnel Amazon customer Extendivite works great this product has made my blood pressure and cholesterol stable I highly recommend it Amazon customer excellent herbal formula. I've been using it to keep my cardiovascular system fine-tuned. ExtendoVite is only $69.95 for a two-month supply. To order, call 1-877- 928-8822 or visit heartdrop.com That's H-E-A-R-T-D-R-O-P.com. Extend your life with ExtendoVite
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: So just think about that there. Just think about that, where we had to use mimeographs. And schools, I think, were the, the biggest consumer of the product. But that was a way to get out some more publications. Now, I have here a laser printer that probably didn't cost much more than my mimeograph machine of those days. I think the mimeograph machine was like $150. And my laser printer is $150. But it is camera ready copy, it prints on both sides of the page. Although it's, you know, it's eight and a half by 11 or eight and a half by 14, it's not 1117. But if I bought a special version of this printer, I could literally print a magazine on it and then take it to a binder and have it what they call saddle-stitched and make magazines from it. Just think how that technology has changed over the years. Kurt Collins is our guest co-host. Jacques Vallée will 100%, I promise, will be with the next segment. He had to kind of limit his appearance because he's doing some traveling. And he'll mention this briefly, probably. He's going to Paris soon. And the authorities in Paris are working on a large UFO report, several hundred pages, and we hope to ask Jacques about it. So we're definitely going to keep in touch with him. The other thing here we're going to ask Jacques about is a very, very curious book called Trinity, The Best Kept Secret. Jacques is one author. The other author is Paula Harris. Oh,
2: yeah. Oh, boy, it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, she has a lot of. Um, well, let's say she has a very open mind. But another interesting thing is she's also a um, UFO convention promoter. She holds this uh, Starworks conference each year. And if you look at the guest line up there, it's some wild and woolly folks. And there's, there's usually a few people that are more on the respectable side. And there's your Jamie, Jaime Masson and, and oh, just some very imaginative types, we'll just say.
1: I don't think she has any filters on. I think that's the big problem, that she is open to everything. And she can do some good stuff and some stuff that's not so good. And that's the problem. I know that we had her on the Powercast. I think exactly once. And we asked her about the time she said that Billy Meyer is the real deal. And that was one of those conversations that really went off. And I think we reached the point where we kind of sort of hung up on each other just oh, before no. the show ended. This is with our original co-host. I later met Paula Harris and she was a really gracious lady, very nice. She's since wanted to come back on the Powercast. I just don't know why. But let me tell you something about this book, because we're going to ask Jacques about it. They quote, first of all, people who have given good words about the book. One is the late Paul Hellier, who was kind of wacky. So I won't say so much about that. But also, listen to this. Christopher Mellon, one of the current people in the UFO field who is a former Assistant Secretary of Defense for the United States of America, called the data in this book fresh reason to believe that our government is concealing physical proof of alien technology. Read the book, and if persuaded... Join the millions of other Americans seeking a straight answer. That's Christopher Mellon.
2: Oh, that's way out there, isn't it? I mean,
1: Paul Heller. I understand that he could be way out there in left field or right field, whatever field you want to be in. He'd be in the fringe. He'd be hanging on the fringe. But Mellon, he's supposed to be a serious... Serious guy, how does he accept this?
2: I wonder about that. You know, there. Uh, uh, Doctor billet was last on your show in 2017, and a lot, a lot's happened since then. You know, lots, lots of UFO things in the news, the projects he's worked on, and and I, and uh, uh, Chris Mellon was, uh, I think he was sort of around on the periphery, but you know, he's really coming to prominence since. 2017, and, uh, you know, has been a huge advocate for disclosure, and he, you know, in in a lot of ways, with with this effort, you know, I think uh, Leslie Kane sort of was at the forefront of of the rebranding of ufology, and they they sort of were taking it back to the Donald Kehoe days, where they're saying, okay, we're not going to talk about, about Visiting aliens and, and abductions. We're just going to talk about sightings of saucers, about credible observers, you know, military pilots, airline pilots, and that sort of thing. It's like what what's going on? So they, they sort of repackaged it, and along with even uh, NARCAP, who focuses on um, airline encounters, you know. So it's a matter of, of air safety. So, and that's been packaged into the. Um, the are ufos a threat scenario and that that's something they've been able to persuade the congressman and, and chris Mellon's very much part of that and his position for the most part has been we need to find out what these things are however in the meantime he's drawn some conclusions and he keeps referring to them as vehicles and anomalous vehicles and so and then you know it He gives these hints, you know, it's like, well, if they're not ours, they must be somebody else's. So and he's dropping hints. But in the introduction to this book, it does sound a whole lot more like, you know, these are little men in spaceships from some, you know, another planet.
1: I don't know what you can say about that. He's become a true believer, I guess. Now, the same is true for, by the way, former Senator Harry Reid. Remember, Senator Reid was one of those instrumental in getting $22 million of government funds. I guess they decided to buy fewer toilet seats and screwdrivers that year and instead devoted that to sending it over to Bob Bigelow to do UFO research.
2: Well, that's a a very confusing story because it it, it sounds like his friendship with Robert Bigelow is, is really where this all came from. And Robert Bigelow was focused on Skinwalker Ranch. And if you listen to uh, uh, George Knapp and, and Harry Reid tell the story, it sounds like it was the the Skinwalker Ranch is what got this whole ball rolling. And then, the you know, that there was the phenomena thing. And, of course, they were able to package it around, you know, is there an aerial threat? And that—that that was what the funding of, of, for this whole project, what became known as ATIP, was all about. Was you know, do is there a foreign technology we need to worry about, and what is the future, and and of uh, the capabilities that'll be developed in the next forty or fifty years, and can we do it? Is somebody else working on it, and you know, how do we prevent being surprised by enemy enemy developments? So, and there were all these papers written for this end, and. So Harry Reid, though, is kind of cagey in describing it, but he says he's not he's not interested in the stories of the little green men, and those are his words. Um, that it's all about air safety.
1: We have Jacques Vallée coming up next with Jean and with Kurt. You're in
2: the Paracast.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN.
6: Call Advantage Gold at 800-900-8000. Call
7: 800-900-8000. USA Radio News with
10: Tim Berg. At least 50,000 Afghans are expected to be admitted into the United States following the chaotic fall of Kabul as part of an enduring commitment to help those who aided the American war effort and others who are particularly vulnerable under Taliban rule. That's according to DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Regarding the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley was asked by Fox News if the withdrawal could have been executed better.
3: The collapse of the Afghan army happened at a much faster rate
10: uh, and very unexpected. Uh, by pretty much everybody uh, and then
1: with that is the collapse of the afghan government um, so that was definitely a surprise but i will say that there was an awful lot of planning done
10: president biden spending his labor day weekend at his delaware home usa radio news Today Show weatherman Willard Scott is dead. He was 87. Al Roker calling Scott a beloved member of the Today Show family. Scott, who joined NBC's Today Show in 1980, may be best known for wishing happy birthday to people celebrating their 100th birthday. Oregon state troopers and firefighters are suing their governor.
6: A group of Oregon police officers and firefighters have sued the state's governor over a vaccine mandate. Governor Kate Brown signed an order on August 13th requiring anyone employed by the executive branch of the state to show full proof of vaccination against COVID by October 18th. The lawsuit filed by the Oregon Fraternal Order of Police and the Kingsley Firefighters Association calls for the governor's order to be blocked, claiming it conflicts with Oregon statutes, the Oregon Constitution's guarantee of free expression, and the United States Constitution's guarantee of equal protection, free exercise, and due process. Oregon is one of 18 states along with the District of Columbia to have some form of vaccine mandate for its state's workers. From the USA Radio News Ohio Bureau,
17: I'm Dan Naraki. USA Radio News.
12: This is Robert Hastings, author of UFOs and Nukes, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: So, folks, let's just look at this real carefully. Our main guest for this segment, Jacques Valet, is an Internet pioneer. You look up his bio. He was there in the early days. As you know, I've written a number of books and magazine articles about the Internet, And Kurt Collins, our guest co-host this week, has been struggling to get connected, and we couldn't get his Skype connection to work.
18: In my case, I didn't even get to the headset. Uh, (laughs) I I did dig up my old version. You know, I haven't used Skype in a year and a half. So I I dug up my old version and I found, I was happy to find, I still had $24.22 credit. So I tried to start it, but then it went down from there. Because it told me that I had an old uh, version. I had to update uh, a new version to the new browser and everything else. And I I could do it, but I couldn't do it by the time of uh, of our session.
1: Let me ask you: You're using a Mac or a PC?
18: A PC, you know, fairly fairly late model, uh, you know, uh, and I've got all the right software. But one problem is that I've gotten used to Zoom. You know, Zoom works the first time, and it doesn't get you into all this garbage. You know, they've really designed something for people who are busy. Skype is still, you know, it's funny to say that, but it's an old-style software from the days where, you know, you had to reload everything and and manage your files in the background and do all that. And, and who's got time for that today?
1: <laughs> I kind of agree with you. The only thing is here, when we want to do the kind of group stuff that we want to do for sessions up to two hours and more, Zoom wants to send us a bill.
18: Yeah, well... That may be the price you, you pay for having, uh, you know, the convenience. You can always do it in several sessions, but uh, I realize that's not, uh, not very convenient.
1: We will survive, my friend.
18: Let me ask you <laughs>
1: here, since we don't have you for a long amount of time, and I wanted to really cut to the chase on a couple of things here. All the stuff that we're seeing now on UFOs as a result of the New York Times article, is that like revisiting... The excitement of the 60s when we had congressional hearings and the Condon Report, or do you think something's different this, this time?
18: You know, I, I'm a little bit jaded about that because you, you mentioned the Condon Report. The New York Times, of course, enthusiastically embraced the Condon Report and said, you know, UFOs are dead. And they were dead for, as you know, for the last how many, many years. Of course, the Academy of Sciences embraced the Condon Report and said, that's it, you know, UFOs. There may be something, but it's not important, okay? And then, uh, of course, the Air Force stopped their program. They they didn't really stop it because pilots continued to see things in the sky and report them. There was no active Blue Book program so, uh, you know, wind up the thing to today. Today, the New York Times is enthusiastically, you know, embracing pilots who see UFOs. They're not Air Force. I mean, the Air Force still doesn't see anything. It's the Navy that sees things now and, and reports it, which is great. So to answer your question, uh, no, a page has been turned. We are back. Now the New York Times embraces it. The Academy of Sciences is... is, is uh, Curious about it and listening, you have people like uh, you know Professor Villo at Harvard, uh, starting a program to look at the sky and and to look at space for essentially uh, you know sightings of interesting interesting uh, objects. So those are all positive things. So we've gone. You know, two steps ahead all of a sudden, thanks to, you know, a few brave people writing good articles, uh, including good articles in The New York Times and waking up all that. Having said that, we've also taken one step back from the two steps ahead in the fact that I, I, I don't think the UFO community realizes, yes, there will be periodic reports. Now, I think they are talking about monthly reports on what they collect, but it's all going to be classified. So we've gone from, you know, mild interest or no interest in the open world to great interest in the classified world and maybe a new window on the phenomenon for scientists, which I guess overall is kind of positive but I don't know where that leaves us Um, you know the people actually doing research on the ground
1: what interesting me too with this new report is it kind of wants to ignore everything that went before so there was nothing until 2004 all those sightings all the stuff that happened before the Condon report all the stuff that happened after the Condon report that doesn't exist
18: yes uh, well, there are a few people uh, like me and a number of our friends who have continued to compile data and put it on the Internet and publish things. I mean, as you know, I, I, I just published a book with Paula Harris called Trinity about a case that all of us had ignored uh, uh, except her, that, you know, was a crash in New Mexico two years before the word flying saucer was was even invented before, two years before uh, Kenneth Arnold. And there are really interesting reasons why nobody knew about that. So I've learned a lot in the last, you know, three years. Working with Paula uh on the book and on the research and in the field and in New mexico uh, uh you know interviewing the witnesses going back to the site so the research continues and um, I think that uh a page has been turned. In, in the official, now it's, it's okay to talk to scientists openly about UFOs. What you discover is that they know nothing. I mean, y- you see these uh, experts who are brought on TV uh, to talk about UFOs, uh, you know, I mean science uh, leaders, and they say things like, how come UFOs are only seen in the U.S.? Uh, or how come UFOs have only been seen, reported uh, accurately in the last five years? You know, and uh, that's staggering. I mean, the, the we have there is an, an enormous education campaign that we we need to do to bring the, the the scientific community up to date.
1: It's like they were living in another reality. And the question I would have here which is most interesting, is after all this, after all this, what was the Air Force? What was the Pentagon? What was the Navy? What were they doing when people saw UFOs? Were they just saying, oh, that's not kosher anymore. It doesn't exist.
18: So um, I've. You know, I've wondered about that, of, of course. Um, I think that there is a good reason why we only get, uh, I mean, the, the sightings I talk about are the ones from the last five years or so. And, um, you know, the eight tip program, uh, that was run by Lou, you know, by Lou Elizondo and so on. Um, the, the, the data in, in the last five years has taken a great jump in quality because of the sensors that are now aboard those uh, those ships and those airplanes. So, you know, what broke it was, uh, uh, of course, the, the Nimitz data uh, from very, very good um, infrared cameras. Now, there are infrared so they don't really give you a picture they give you um, a temperature signature
1: jacques valet okay. is joining us for the second half of the power kurt collins is our guest co-host kurt's is subjected to not the best connection but we're living with it with Jean, with jacques and with kurt you're in the pericast <laughs>
6: In the last 12 months, the Federal Reserve has added over $4 trillion to their balance sheet. It's led to an explosion in financial assets. Stocks, bonds, commodities, cryptocurrencies, housing prices have all exploded higher. But the Federal Reserve can't keep this going forever. This is unsustainable. It's why you need Advantage Gold. We teach people how to own physical gold and silver the right way. Call 800-900-8000. We don't pay celebrities millions of dollars. We pass that value on to you. It's why we're number one. Call 800-900-8000 now, speak with one of our experts, and learn how. We'll send you a free gold kit and a copy of my national best-selling book, The Great Devaluation. Call 800-900-8000. That's 800-900-8000. Get the best information, the best process, the best service, the best value. Call 800-900-8000 now.
13: Take Jake's advice. Give federal tax management a phone call. If they help me, they can help anybody. Call the federal tax management hotline now. 800-503-8625. 800-503-8625.
0: 800-503-8625. Hi, this is James Fox. You're listening to the Paracast,
12: the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: On the Paracast, Jacques fillet joining us. I think the last time you were with us was like 2017, so we're really, really happy to have you back uh, for the time that we have here. I did see you making a prominent presence in the movie of the Phenomenon, which is really nice because James Fox has worked on that thing for so long. It's like he gave up his life to make that film.
18: Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And... Uh... I had a chance to help in the editing, so I came in uh, uh, towards the, the end of the filming. Uh, he was still filming a few things, adding a few things, but we spent quite a bit of time in the editing room with people who were who very knowledgeable about the phenomenon, and essentially the problem was uh, an abundance of riches. I mean, having to cut in the uh, extraordinary material he had. Put it into the right uh, the right size. It was quite an experience because the uh, and I tried to bring recollection of what it was like to talk about Socorro with um, uh, Dr. Hynek and and the things that went there and so on, and that that helped in uh, in editing. So there is some value in having been around for a long time because you can see a perspective that you know even the. The good people in Washington don't really see because they have a turn of duty of a few years. They get exposed to this stuff and they do the best job they can, but they don't really have the perspective. And, of course, the Air Force is out of the business. So your question of what they do is... People have assumed, including scientists, that there were no more UFOs. Well, you know, blue book or no blue book, the pilots are going to continue to see things. And the, the regulation that they are under is, has never been repealed. So you know, an Air Force pilot who is at, at you know, at uh, 15,000 feet and is being paced by some light or some strange object is going to report it, and it's going to go into a file, and it's going to be followed up. It just doesn't get to the attention of the public or to the scientists. The, the only reason uh, we know about the Nimitz is that the tape, you know, I think this is 2004 and 2005, people had the tape, and the tape somehow came to the attention of a number of people within within the Navy, and, and also within uh, Bob Bigelow's project at Bass, you know, in Las Vegas. Actually, you know, I worked on the database for that project, which was, as, as you know, funded by the DOD, and uh, I really couldn't move to Las Vegas because I had a a regular job in Silicon Valley and I don't think I could quite quit overnight and moved to Vegas, but I, I designed that database, and the man who took it over from me after I had designed it was one of the F-18 pilots, so we knew at that time, way back, we had seen the film, and, and we knew about it, but the public really didn't pay much attention until it came out in the James... Movie and of course, in the new york times and and on the internet, so I think the, the the new interest is caused by the fact that we do have good data now that a scientist can look at you know good data from uh, excellent you know excellent uh, uh, equipment and you can correlate the radar with the Raytheon uh thermal. Camera. Now, I think people have jumped to conclusions a little bit too quickly. Uh, Raytheon wrote a multi-page memo to the Navy, saying, "Yeah, you you have those pictures from uh, the cameras we gave you. I mean, those those are large devices, and they are under the wings of the F-18s. Not all of them, by the way. I mean, just, just some of them. And they, but they are designed to track." an enemy aircraft. So they are designed to track exhaust from a jet, essentially. I mean, that's all they do. Uh, it's not a picture. Uh, it's a, it's a, a thermal signature so uh, the the raytheon uh, thing was was quite open about you know what it was i mean they didn't speculate about what the uh, uh you know what the, the output was but they said be careful because you know we didn't sell you a camera we we sold you an a, an infrared device that is designed for a particular job a military job you know a, a combat job And, uh, yeah, uh, it it, it works, but you have to correlate it with other things. So it's just one piece of a very complex puzzle. So when you see those pictures in the New York Times and you say, oh, you know, obviously that's a UFO, well, yeah, uh, but there are some steps in between. And I think people have jumped to conclusions a little bit Quickly, about how fast it went, and the fact that you couldn't do that, and and so on. I mean, it's it, it gets very complicated, and the data you would need to analyze that has not been released. So about half of the data, you know, was taken from the carrier by a few people who landed and went to the captain and and got the data from uh, the Roosevelt and, and from the Nimitz and flew off. So we, we don't have the classified side of it, which might, you know, presumably would be important to have to correlate with the stuff that we, we do have. On the other hand i mean the testimony that to me is fascinating is the uh, the visual testimony from the pilots from from Fravor and from uh, you know uh, uh, one or two other pilots who actually saw something as part of that because there I trust their eyes a lot more than I would trust. They, they knew where they were. They knew what they were looking at, and I, I trust their eyes. These are very, very experienced uh, men and women, uh, much more than I trust, uh, you know, an infrared camera, uh, which is an important backup in the, in the data stream. But the uh, human eye, you know, is still the best detector.
1: Now, one of the questions or issues raised, one of the issues raised here is whether, after all this, some or all of these objects could have been drones or some foreign powers technology.
18: so if you if you follow uh, which is which is hard to do, but if you follow the the technical literature on countermeasures, uh, you you encounter a number of things that have not really been brought into the equation here uh, including um a, a, a an ability to make an image appear on radar of uh an airplane that isn't there it's called durfan d r f m directed radio frequency management and uh I had in, in my investment career I I had a uh, an occasion to look at it because one of the companies that had been developing that, that kind of technology which is essentially countermeasures uh, you know, which is a very broad field in electronics, uh, in which I'm not an expert, by the way. But one of those companies approached me because they wanted to spin off a, a piece of the technology that was no longer classified, and they thought it could be used by general aviation. And they were looking for somebody to, to finance a startup, and they would, they would give, give us a technology. Uh, that was already m- pretty mundane. This was something like 20 years ago, so it's very very mundane by now. But people don't seem to know that you can do that, uh, that, you know, uh, a small airplane flying over Los Angeles can look like a B-52 20 miles away to uh, the, all the radars in the area. Uh, so the, the question is... Uh, uh, which i i i can ask a question i i have no idea about the answers uh you know where is that technology now the, the management of radio frequency uh especially applied to radar and uh, other things so um when when you're looking and that's always true i mean in science when you're you're looking at something on a screen for example in astronomy you you have to ask how much is really out there and how much you know how much is my own device and and its own noise in the device or or any other defect or any other error in um, in the electronics or in the processing or in the optics
1: We'll have more with Jacques Vallée. Our guest co-host is Kurt Collins. You're in the Paracast.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNLive.com today.
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Jane Steinberg.
1: We have Jacques Vallée on this half of the Paracast, and we have so many things to talk to him about that what we'll probably do here is after this discussion... We'll meet up with him again, possibly in a few months, and talk more. Kurt, there are a couple of questions in our forum. Can you grab us one or two of those questions from our forum?
2: Paracast forum member, Alpha Romeo Uniform, asks, what is your response to the negative reaction by some areas of ufology to your collaboration with Paula Harris on Trinity?
18: So uh, I, I've learned a lot working with with Paula in the field and with the witnesses, I've learned a lot about the classification of UFO data by the government then and today. And I've learned a lot, uh, sadly, about the UFO community, at least in the U.S. Uh, the moment the book was announced, there was a flurry of stuff on uh, social networks saying that first the the book was going to be canceled, the book had been delayed, there was some question about the book, and anyway it was irrelevant because we were crazy to look into that thing because nothing had happened. This was before we published the book. Now, we, we delayed the book by a couple of weeks, because we found a new witness. Uh, Paola found a new witness, tracked her down, and interviewed her, and we wanted to include that in the book. Now, books get delayed. publication of books gets delayed. I mean, some of them, as you know, because of the uh, pandemic, some books have been delayed for months from major publishers. So, what what does it mean that a book is delayed for two weeks on, on Amazon? I mean, and the, the violence of the comments was was extraordinary. I mean, here we're trying to bring, you know, essentially, in my case, four years of work. Uh, Paola had worked on that case before me for another four years or so, and people are attacking it before they've seen the information. And what does it say about the UFO community? And and the the attacks against Paola in particular were disgusting absolutely disgusting. So I have to confess that, and I've been attacked for that, uh, you know, rightly, that I haven't paid much much attention to crashes. That doesn't mean that I wasn't aware of them. Of course, it would be fascinating to have, uh, you know, hard data, hard material from crashes. But in, in the, the days when I was working with Dr. Heineck, we, we were you know, talking to Stellan Friedman and so on and, and looking at this, but there was nothing that we could take before our colleagues in science. You know, there were stories, look, Roswell is fascinating, Roswell is very important, but nobody saw the thing for. The witness, you know, the, the witnesses are real and they are telling the truth. But they got to the site; they had to look for the site for a long time. Nobody was quite sure which was the right site. If there was one or several, and so on, and and then things were recovered days later. Now, in in the case that uh, Paula was studying before me, the witnesses were there. When the thing crashed, they they saw it crash. They were there, and they were there for the whole week after that. You know, so the the case is extraordinary in the annals of uh, you know UFO crashes. Now I had become interested in crashes in New Mexico, and I was already doing field work with some of my colleagues, including some of my colleagues from Stanford because uh the we we knew about sites where we could go and where things were recoverable, so some of the people in New Mexico who had done the work invited us there, and we had access to those properties so I, I had started to do that for a couple of years, including uh, work from um, a friend of mine who unfortunately was was killed a few years ago, and we had in fact recovered some materials that we were taking to the lab and we were very intrigued with how that material got there and this we We had the corroboration about the story so I was already looking at this, and I was about to look at the case in san antonio you know the 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 case that the book is about when uh, my friend Ron uh, got killed in a, you know, essentially was run over by by a car. And then I I realized that Paola had been doing research. She was the only one who um, paid attention to that case, tracked down the witnesses from Rome initially, and then went to actually meet with them. In New Mexico, and she had recordings of those interviews. Uh, and so, uh, I contacted, uh, Paola and we started uh, putting the, all the data we had and putting it together and trying to see what we could learn, what more we could learn in terms of the, the actual data about the craft. And so I I brought in some of my friends uh, who know more about physics than I do and know more about analysis of uh, plants and everything else. And we worked, you know, pretty secretly for three years at the site. Now, one of the witnesses um, who had – they were – the two witnesses were two kids, seven and nine, and they had, um, of course, seen, seen all this, participated in, uh, uh, you know, observing the, the craft and how it was recovered, all of which is classified today. But we don't need access to the classified files because we had the witnesses. And so uh, she had all those interviews. One of them, um, and they remained silent for 70 years. And there are two Big questions here. That I mean, not all the questions have been solved yet. So we're still doing. In fact, we're in a whole new phase of of research about this case because it's getting actually more and more interesting. The um, one question is why didn't the witnesses ever talk until until Paula found them? But just a few years ago. So for most of their life, they didn't talk. I mean, uh, Jose uh, Padilla, who's the main witness, is alive. uh, He is uh, 86, uh, and he only spoke in the last few years about what he had seen. Ray Mebacca uh, died a few years ago, but um, Paula had by then had recorded several interviews with him and uh, had transcribed those interviews so when I got into the into the case, I first studied the interviews she, uh, she had done, which were extraordinarily well uh, designed and I started analyzing them and then um, putting a list of questions across from those interviews. They were interviewed separately and occasionally together, so we had a pretty complete picture of what had happened. The question is, why didn't they talk? The other question is, why is there no trace of that case? In I mean, this is the the mother of all UFO crashes. Why isn't it somewhere? Either in the Air Force files or in the files of Stanley Friedman, Stanley knew about it um, because somebody called him on a radio show once and said, "You know, there, there was a crash near San Antonio in New Mexico. Did you ever look into that?" And he was too busy with Roswell and he didn't follow up uh, because there was no testimony that was um, that had been reported at that point. So why? Why isn't it in the Air Force files? I mean, as you know, I spent four years uh, going through the Air Force files. Dr. Heineck had a complete um, a complete file of uh, the Blue Book uh, records, which were, by the way, were never classified. Anybody could have looked at it. Any modified scientist could have looked at it.
1: We've got more to come with Jacques Vallée and Jean and Kurt
0: coming of the protectors find out more at rockoids.com that's rockoids r-o-c-k-o-i-d-s.com
6: first we decide where we want to go then we need to know the best way to get there hi my name is adam Barada. i'm the owner of advantage gold we're the highest rated precious metals firm in the country we teach people how to own physical gold and silver That's 800-900-8000. Get the best information, the best process, the best service, the best value. Call Advantage Gold at 800-900-8000. Call
12: 800-900-8000. Do you want to give you and your loved ones premium nutrition right now? Hi, I'm Jamil Bookaboo from TeamGaday.com and the GCN Longevity Health Team. Get your premium nutrition formulated by world-renowned naturopathic doctor, Dr. Joel Wallach at Wholesale, or also become a distributor and earn income while supporting this broadcast. Go to teamgaday.com via the shopping cart or contact form, and I'll get back to you with support personally. That's teamgaday.com with Longevity.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: Jacques Fillet is here, and we're talking about the book Trinity that he co-authored with Paula Harris. After all is said and done, Having communicated with these people, and then you understand as as some of us do that Paula Harris has had a mixed reputation in the UFO field. Do you accept this case as credible?
18: I've worked with Paula for the last four years in on that case, and I, her reporting is impeccable. And I think some of the, 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 the things and rumors and, and attacks that have been directed at her by the American UFO community, I mean, she's respected all over the world. Uh, she has worked with uh, the Secretary of Defense of Canada. She has worked with, uh, you know, with a number of the, the primary witnesses in the history of the phenomenon all over the world. And to see the attacks against her in that are just sophomoric—I mean, they are, you know, worthy of a, you know, twelve-year-old boy. I mean, those are just completely unjustified. Her role, she—the way she sees it—is a role as a journalist. She's not a scientist. She doesn't pretend to be. She's not a ufologist. She's there as an investigative journalist, giving a voice to people who want to testify about what they've seen or what they think about the case. So that's what her previous books are about. In this book, we've gone absolutely step by step in the investigation and what that reveals about the way the government works about the way secrecy works about the the uh, human nature and the misunderstanding we have of witnesses is incredible and by the way uh, you know uh, what i've learned about the history of world war 2 is incredible i mean you know, I was born in 1939. I remember World War II. I mean, I was old enough to see, you know, aerial battles over the town where I grew up when I was four or five. I was in you know, a land occupied by Germany, by Nazi Germany, the first five years of my life. Okay. So I, I know what a war looks like when you're uh, under the bombs. But I had no idea of the, the the war in Japan and how it actually ended and, and the history of the atomic bomb. And so I've had to relearn all of that from a physics view, viewpoint and also from a historical viewpoint and that's what our book is about so I think people should take a, a deep breath get the book I mean you can get it as an ebook you can you know you can get it in an hour on on, on the internet or you can order the paperback and, and get it tomorrow it's twenty bucks or something like that and then we'll talk okay Let, let's uh, because people say well it's just a couple of kids I mean can you know and then I went there, and they believed the kids. I mean, can you believe a kid? Well, um, those kids were very clever. They had an experience that was extraordinary. They watched the re- entire recovery by the Army. There was no Air Force, by the way. One reason it's not in the Air Force size was that there was no Air Force they were airplanes, but they were under the army. It was the army air force. The air force is not going to be created until two years later. Okay, the uh, um, the uh, Roswell crash is not going to happen until two years later. Uh, the word flying saucer, f- flying saucer doesn't exist. Okay, none of that exists. Okay, we we're in the uh, the army uh, has no a procedure to recover a craft that falls from the sky like that if it's not an airplane. So they improvise every step of the way. They don't have access to the property. They have to get access to the property. A captain goes to see the father of the kids, uh, of one of the kids, and ask him permission to cut the fence, because they have to to go in with a large truck with an eighteen wheeler to recover the weather balloon that fell there okay now we we have all that we've reconstructed. Paola and I have reconstructed all the details. The one time she was mad at me was that I, I said, w- we need to go back and we have to ask Jose what the truck looks like. She said, why, why do you need to, to know that? I mean, he already said there was a truck, you know, the army came in with a truck. Well, I need to know how many wheels on that truck because that will tell me the approximate weight of that object. Well, that weather balloon once you do the calculation, I was weighing you know, 4.5 tons or 5 tons approximately. This was no weather balloon. And then where is the propulsion system? The kids gave us great detail about the object. Three people went inside the object, including Jose Padilla, who is still alive. And we have the object that he recovered, the instrument he he recovered from inside the object. By the way, in that whole case, there is no flying saucer. The object was not a saucer. The few descriptions there are, you know, show a disc. It wasn't a disc. It was what they called an avocado, the size of two large trucks put together. It was about 15 feet high. We know the dimensions quite well. And in the book, I mentioned two other cases in which there is also an oval object that has landed, although it didn't crash. One is Socorro. The other is Valensol. Socorro and Valensol were studied by governments, not by ufologists. And we have the data from uh, Project Blue Book, of course, from Dr. Hynek and and, and Blue Book and the, the people who were there. And I've reconstructed the Socorro case, including things that people have never seen about Socorro. Now, let's go back to the uh, the criticism, you know, that was on the Internet from our friends in the American UFO community who said, well, it's two kids. You can't trust two kids. I don't, who knows? You know, and well, yeah, the two kids were there. They were there because they were entrusted by their father to take care of the ranch it 's an extremely large ranch in, you know the way ranches can be large in New Mexico. there is cattle there. Somebody has to follow the cattle. All the men are in uniform able bodied men and and women are scattered all over europe and japan and and uh, you know the five continents fighting the war the The war with Germany has just ended, and the war in Japan is uh, about to end, and the the crash happens two days after the capitulation of Japan within 20 miles of the place where the first atom bomb has been exploded, and everybody has missed that except for one very clever journalist, Paula Harris. Okay, so I think... When people say, well, you know, that, that's just another case and there is no detail, we have all the detail and we have um, material from inside.
1: We have Jacques Vallée. Our guest co-host is Kurt Collins, who's nursing, rather bad connection, but we'll take care of that. More to come. You're in
2: the Paracast.
9: You are listening to GCN.
7: I'm Brad
16: Bernards. In an exclusive interview with Fox News' Jennifer Griffin in Ramstein, Germany, Saturday, General Mark Milley, Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman, was asked about the withdrawal from Afghanistan.
3: I think a couple of things. Uh, One is the collapse of the Afghan army happened at a much faster rate uh, and very unexpected uh, by pretty much everybody. Uh, And then with that is the collapse of the Afghan
16: government. Um, so that was definitely a surprise. A coalition of Oregon police officers and firefighters have sued Governor Kate Brown over a COVID-19 vaccine mandate for state employees. Plaintiffs seek an order declaring Executive Order Number 2129 is unenforceable because it conflicts with Oregon statutes, the Oregon Constitution, and conflicts with the United States Constitution, the complaint states. This is USA Radio News. Mask mandates, state, local, and federal executive authority, and the battle to define the limits of Roe v. Wade on abortion combine to make this a very exciting time for the courts and law, according to legal expert Alan Dershowitz on Newsmax. Uh,
10: I think the decision could signal that there is a five-to-four majority, possibly, to substantially limit uh, Roe v. Wade. If there were five justices who thought that Roe v. Wade could not be limited, Why would they allow the Texas statute to go into
16: effect even for a few months? The U.S. Coast Guard said Saturday that cleanup crews are responding to a sizable oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico following Hurricane Ida. The spill, which is ongoing, appears to be coming from a source underwater at an offshore drilling lease about two miles south of Port Fouchon, Louisiana. The reported location is near the site of a miles-long brown and black oil slick. This is USA Radio News.
12: that's 800-475-0092. Hi, this is James Fox. You're listening to the Paracast,
0: the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: So we have Jacques Fillet. And we have our guest co-host, Kurt Collins, joining us this week. And Jacques is talking about the book Trinity. Go ahead, please.
18: So the the book has been out in English uh, on Amazon. Uh, We we had publishers, other publishers interested, but they couldn't bring it out until uh, early next year. So, we, um, we wanted to bring the book out at the same time as the Navy report, and, and we did. So, the book has been out for three months in English, uh, again, on Amazon, in paperback, and e-book, so people can get it today. It's also now out in French, in, um, in Spanish, and in Italian, uh, also on Amazon and there is a german version being uh, translated right now so it's going to be all over the world the the reaction we find in other countries is actually greater than the interest in the us because in the us you know everybody's in there there isn't much of a sense of history in america you know america is a young country still and uh, when you talk about eisenhower you're talking about you know prehistory to um, most American kids, the, um, in, in Europe and elsewhere, of course, people have a greater sense of, of, of history. So there is intense interest in this because it's never surfaced before. Now, yes, there are two, two kids who were the primary witnesses. They were there. They tried to bring help to this crash. Uh, they, they assumed it was an airplane. The thing came down, hit a communication tower that was controlling communication for the north, north end of uh, the uh, White Sands Range. This is still within White Sands, the extended White Sands periphery, even though it's a cattle ranch. And... Um, so airplanes were relying on the communication tower. The object bumps into the communication tower, uh, turns it off. Essentially, the communication is dead, which is noticed by the control tower at Alamogordo. There is an airplane coming in, uh, which is a bomber, um, and probably a B-29. And uh, the uh, we know who the pilot was. The pilot writes a report of seeing, he is asked by the tower, uh, the control tower, to look at the communication tower and find out what's going on. So he reports that the the tower has been damaged and then he sees a fire in the brush. The fire comes from a, um, a place where the object has crashed. So he describes the object and he sees two little kids on horseback next to the object. So we have corroboration that, yeah, the kids were there. Uh, they were on horse horseback. Of course, there was the, that was the best way to get into the ranch. There, there is a road, but it's going to take you three times longer to get to the ranch with the, the dirt road than it, it cutting through the landscape on horseback. So, of course um he he reports that and we we know of the report and then we um Paula found a, another witness who was a little girl at the time uh, she came in into the family later after the two kids had grown up and gone on to their you know their adult life uh, uh Uh, Mr. Padilla enrolled in the Vietnam War at 18, so he was gone by then. She was on site and can testify about all the material that had been recovered by them because the the soldiers the detachment that was sent to recover the debris from the crash couldn't pick up everything
1: obviously we're going to need more time to cover this than we have with our session with you shock let me ask you kind of a closing question on then we can move on to a few other things before you go and that is okay. after all this we're talking about people who remembers something that happened when they were very young and they're remembering this many decades later. How accurate do you think their memories could be after all these years?
18: So, Psychologists are sort of divided about this, of course you know i, I we, we've looked um especially you know doing the the Bigelow studies and so on we've talked to psychologists about the nature of human testimony and you know, all and all that um, My father was an investigative judge, and uh, I saw something when i was uh, you know when I was a teenager, and I remember it vividly. As if I was there. In the transcripts that I studied, uh, the transcripts from Paola, the the kids... Go. It's very interesting. They go from the past. You know, I was there, and Remy and I got on our horses, and we went there, all in the preterito. You know, in the past tense. And then, and then we see that. And the, the the beings are are there. They are not looking at us. They walk in a strange way. They they translate from one place to another. They they talk. They shift to the present. They are there. There, it, it is present to them. Now, psychologists say that when we as adults try to reconstruct what happened when we were kids, those memories are tainted by, you know, by our own biases, which is true. I mean, you know, there are many things from your history. So if I were to ask you, you know, uh, how did you go to school when you were 12, you'll tell me a story. It's probably true, but you'll miss the details. You'll make up some of the details. Not so when you've had a traumatic... I mean, I remember, you know, at the liberation of France, I, I remember the town where I was in being bombed by the RAF. I, I there was no place to hide. And by then I was four, four, four and a half. You know, four and a half year old kid can can see things clearly and understand them. I could see the airplanes being shot. I could you know, I could hear the the, the, the batteries or the German batteries shooting at the, the aircraft, I could see the planes falling and I could see the the pilots parachuting out and being shot Shot at by the Germans, you know they were not taking prisoners at that point the The town I was in had two strategic bridges from which um, Normandy could have been reinforced by the Germans. They had to go and and the um, american planes and and the English planes were dumping bombs from very high, and they were missing the bridges and you know they destroyed half of the town. I saw that, okay, and I, I can I can give you a very accurate description. I, I don't have, you know, memory. It's true that memories in kids are not fully formed until later. You know, maybe when they are seven or eight or later, uh, where the, the uh, analytical memory gets formed. But I, I remember uh, those scenes. As individual scenes, I couldn't tell you what I did afterwards. I couldn't tell you where I came from, how I got to the place where I saw this, or how I, where I went after that, or, or when I had for, you know, for dinner that day. I couldn't reconstruct that at all. But that particular scene is like, you know, 30 seconds of a movie. Very, very, very clear. And when I talk to Jose, you know, Jose has a mimetic memory. I mean, he has, and uh, uh, he can reconstruct dates, you know, in an in an amazing way. So uh, I, I trust his memory. Plus the fact that, again, we have correlation from the pilot as he came in that day and saw the kids, saw the object, saw the brush on fire, and saw that the tower had been hit, okay? And then we have the testimony of Sabrina that Paola found later, who can tell us what she observed looking back at the site and looking at the material that was recovered from the site, some of which we have,
1: Hey, we're going to have okay. to do a break here. Then we'll have a few more moments to spend with Jacques Vallée. More to come with Jean and Kurt Collins. You're in the
2: Paracast.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
1: Hey, listeners.
7: the Paracast. Plus. to learn more about Paracast Plus. Millions of Americans are preparing for food shortages. No wonder. With increasing bizarre news headlines, water shortages, and the trucking crisis, we're seeing the early warning signs. Food shortages can happen overnight, catching you completely by surprise. That's why it makes good sense to secure some emergency food kits while you can. Emergency food that stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage, unlike grocery store food that goes bad fast. The company to trust is my Patriot Supply. We've served millions of American families in recent years. Our food kits give you over 2,000 calories a day, which is what your body needs under stress to survive. We ship fast and discreet to your door. You'll have your food within days, too, not weeks or months. Our mission is your survival, and our food could definitely be a lifesaver when the peanut butter hits the fan. So don't wait. It's time to act. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. MyPatriotSupply.com.
4: Deb's constipation with belly pain, discomfort, and bloating kept giving her grief. She talked to her doctor to get some relief. Turns out Deb had irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, or IBS-C, which was a start. Saying yes to Linzess helped her do her part.
15: Linzess or linaclotide, is a prescription medicine that treats IBS-C in adults. Linzess works differently than laxatives. It lets you have more frequent and complete bowel movements and helps relieve overall abdominal symptoms, belly pain, discomfort, and bloating. These symptoms were studied in combination, not individually. Do not give Linzess to children less than six, and it should not.
12: That's 800-985-1610
17: Hi, this is Tracy Torme, screenwriter, producer. You're listening to Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: I have to say that our guest, Jacques Vallée, can spend one more segment with us here, and I do have other questions to ask of him, and then he'll be back possibly in a few months to talk more. But I'm saying here that the connection quality is fabulous. With a mobile phone, it's all over the place. You know, you can get something like it's a digital haze, or it's loud and clear like the guest is in front of you. So they haven't fixed that yet.
18: I'm I'm using a landline. I have two landlines. And I've kept them because, the, because of the quality. When I, I want a good quality to talk to, you know, my friends in Europe, that's what I use as, uh, as opposed to the, you know, the cell phone or the, uh, or the Internet.
1: Ah. Hey, Kurt, you have another question there from one of our members of our audience.
2: Paracast forum member, Henris42, asks about the database system you created. During the contract with Bass to the United States government, was there cooperation with the military on their cases?
18: Um, well, I, I didn't, you know, I only used uh, files that were uh, were open and. Uh, Again, there is a lot of interest, you know, because of the Nimitz, and and that information is so good. People are focusing on that um, entirely, at least in the U.S. Um, But, you know, the the, the military records are only about 10% of the information about UFOs. I mean... uh, most of the data that I'm interested in comes from civilian reports, people who've seen something in their backyard. It didn't, uh, in, in in many cases, they saw it appear essentially out of nowhere. Uh, it, it didn't fall from the sky. It didn't come from, you know, from uh, uh, a long distance. It, it materializes there, uh, and then uh, then it's gone. And, uh, the, or it, it flew in and was there for long enough for them to get a good description. And uh, if I'm lucky, they get the photograph and then it flies out. Most, no, the bulk of the information we have is from civilian witnesses and it's open. Now, the, the military data is very valuable. In in some ways, um, it's more constrained because a pilot only sees what he can see from the cockpit. I mean that's pretty obvious. But he has he or she has instruments that can supplement the stuff that uh, that is not visually seen. So that's important because we have instrumental data that we're not going to get from a farmer. But the farmer knows where he is. He knows his field. He can uh, look at the traces. He can document the traces. Uh, I can go there. I don't need a special clearance. And uh, I can go there several times and I can interview the other witnesses and so on. I have access to that. So most of my data from essentially all over the world, and of course, Paula has done the same thing in, in Latin America and in Italy and in Europe in the rest of Europe, uh, I've done it in Russia I've you know done it in uh, uh, South America as well and of course in France and uh, that's the data I've got so that's that goes into not one database but into what people call data lake where you have multiple databases um, for technical reasons a pilot database which we have by the way with over three thousand cases um, that the data is in a different form because the pilot is looking at instruments and uh, compasses and so on that uh, a farmer doesn't have in front of him. so the the data is structured slightly differently and then the the big problem is of course merging. Uh, all those databases, and I've got about 20 databases that I'm working on uh, in parallel. Um, Of course, one of them is the Blue Book database that includes both um, military data and civilian data. And by the way, one thing people should look at in Blue Book is the Navy reports, because remember, this was... The, the Air Force intelligence, but the the, uh, the the armed forces the the other arms, the Army and the Navy, were under instructions to report to Blue Book. So it was the focus point for the for all the military data. There are excellent um, Navy reports from ships in the Blue Book um, database that people have been ignoring. So now that we're talking about the Navy having the upper hand in studying UFOs, maybe somebody should dig that up. Uh, There's uh, hundreds of reports from the Navy.
1: There's so much coming out now about UFOs. Great hope that scientists will finally get started. And you mentioned briefly Dr. Loeb from Harvard early on in the show, and we're hoping we'll have him on the the Paracast in the near future. But you and I especially have been around for a few years do you think we will be alive when something breaks on this subject that resolves it
18: uh, you know in science i mean people are asking me the question in a more direct way you're very polite but people are not polite and they say do you think you'll know before you die okay i'm 82 so it, it's going to happen sooner or later in in science you know, it's like asking a cancer researcher, are we going to solve cancer before you die? And the answer is no. I mean, uh, there is no way. I mean, the problem is too complicated. Now, we're going to make progress, and we're going to cure people of some cancers. You know, I mean, we do now. 20 years ago, you we didn't. Okay, so all you can hope and I've seen that with the internet. Uh, my mentor was Paul Barron of Rand Corporation, uh, who invented packet switching, which is essentially the way the internet works. And he never patented it because he was working on on a government contract when when he invented it. And uh, so it's it's open, and which is why we have the internet today the way the way it works. And, um, you know, I asked him that question, you know, where do we go and how do you see your contribution? And he said he was a very modest man. most people don't know that he was maybe not the father, but the grandfather of the Internet. And he said, all you can do is it's like building a, a cathedral. All you can do is bring one more stone. If you're a scientist, you know, don't, don't let it go to your head. I mean, all you do is bring one more stone.
1: Hey, Jacques, tell our listeners if they want to know more about what you do, where can they check you out?
18: Uh, well, it, you know, uh, I have a website, which is my name, uh, you know, dub dot, 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 dot uh, Jacques Vallée in one word, uh, dot net. And it has full text of a, a lot of stuff that I've published. Uh, including, uh, you know, uh, some things about artificial intelligence and some things about applying AI to UFO sightings that I, I did for for the Air Force, which was published by the AIAA, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. People are saying we should apply AI to. UFO cases. Well, that that paper dates from 1985, and everybody has has forgotten it, but uh, it's there.
1: We'll check that place shockfilet.net.
18: Yeah, well, it's easy to check. It's you know, it's free. <laughs> That's it. Uh, people should get the book also before they say stupid things any you know anymore. And there are a lot of good, interesting questions. You know, from the book that we're still looking for the answers. So people could could help.
1: Hey, you can find us on Twitter at the Paracast, on Facebook at the Paracast. Check out branded merchandise at the Paracast.shop. That's the Paracast.shop. That's where we have the t shirts and all the other stuff with the logos, the Paracast. We also offer the Paracast Plus where we give you a special version of this show free of the network ads. And in addition the after the Paracast podcast. Where Kirk Collins and I will be continuing our discussions. So you'll definitely want to do that. We also offer a special deal with a lifetime subscription to the Paracast Plus. Use the coupon code UFO20, you get a 20% discount. Check out the Paracast.plus, the Paracast.plus. Jacques Filet, always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining us on the Paracast.
18: Thank you, guys. Let's then again into